listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, this psalm today, Psalm 19, it's an astounding psalm. It's going to make a bold claim. It's going to make a claim that actually seems kind of crazy. But it's a, it's a beautiful poem. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Astounding. And it make, like I said, it makes a big claim. The big idea of the, of the psalm is our big idea of the sermon today. Here's the big idea. Wisdom is delicious. Wisdom is delicious. This is the, the picture the psalm uses says the laws of God are sweeter than honey. Psalmist is saying, hmm, that's what wisdom tastes like. It's almost as if the psalmist one day was walking out in the woods and he sees this big beehive just dripping. He says like honey dripping from the honeycomb. He sees this honey just dripping and he goes and he tastes it and he says, yes, that's how you describe God's law. When I first read this, I thought of Winnie the Pooh. My kids like Winnie the Pooh, and there's one episode, y'all, where Winnie the Pooh loves honey so much. He is so into honey, he gets himself stuck in a hole getting honey, and he doesn't even care, right? Like all of his friends, the rabbit and piglet, they're all worried, trying to get him out of the hole, and he's like, I don't know what y'all are so worried about. This is great. I can just sit here and eat honey all day long. He's loving life. This is an interesting claim, and C.S. Lewis, he wrote a great book called Reflections on the Psalms. So it's a wonderful book. I recommend it. And he dedicated a whole chapter to this claim. And he kind of challenges it. He asks the question, can God's laws really be sweet? Can they really be delicious? Now, sure, you can appreciate maybe wisdom. You can obey God's law. You can see the value in it. But is it really exhilarating to us? Is it really delicious to us? For example, many of you, you may like cars. You love having them, you love driving them, you love looking at them, but do you love the speed limit? I remember one time I had to get my CDL, my commercial driver's license, they hand you this book, and it's a ton of pages, all of rules and regulations. You got to study and learn, and you got to go, and there's like eight tests. Y'all, at no point in that process did I ever say, man, this is delicious. Maybe you like sports, maybe you like baseball, you love hitting the ball, throwing the ball, stealing a base, scoring a run. Do you get super jazzed up when, like, Major League Baseball releases its newest version of the rule book? Man, look at Y'all got to check out paragraph 34, you know, line C. Check out that rule. That's amazing. No. This is especially confusing when we take into account that often our desires take us the complete opposite direction, don't they? And so the example Lewis uses is a, a starving, hungry beggar who sees some bread through a window, and he's starving, and he can't afford to buy the bread, and he knows the law tells him stealing is wrong. Do not steal the bread. In that moment, y'all, that beggar, you know what? He may obey the law. He may value the law. He may honor the law. But in that moment, isn't that law kind of oppressive to him? Isn't it kind of a burden to him? How, in what sense, then, can it be sweeter than honey? He also uses the example of someone caught in a loveless marriage. So that person may decide to stay married out of honor, respect, obedience for the law, and yet 
that law is going to feel like a burden. So here's my question this morning. Is this true? Is wisdom really delicious? Is it really possible to love the law so that it's sweeter than honey? Well, let's read Psalm 19. We'll read the whole Psalm, verse 1 through 14. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit, circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This, wisdom is, or this psalm is really broken into three parts. In the first part, the psalmist says wisdom is clearly and continuously on display in the world we see around us. And he really says two things about this wisdom from God. He says it's constant and it's clear. So what he's saying is the heavens, the sky, the sun, y'all, they're not just there by accident. They tell us something. They're communicating something. They're a revelation. They show us God's vastness and his radiance. And it's wisdom from God. And it's constant. Those words, declare and proclaim, they're participles. That means it's really saying they keep on declaring, they keep on proclaiming. And he says day after day, night after night, there's a regularity and a consistency in how God is revealing his wisdom through nature. And he says this, it's clear. It's clear for all to see. It's not like a language where some people know the language and some people get it, but all the unspiritual people don't know the language and they don't get it. No, no, no. This kind of revelation, it is clear and without words. Now, husbands in here, you know exactly what this is talking about. You know why? Because you've received the look before, right? Kids in here, you've received the look from mom, haven't you? No words are communicated, but you know, you're doing something you're not supposed to do, you're not obeying, and all of a sudden she shoots you the look, and she doesn't have to say a word, does she? But, man, she's communicating a lot. You better put that cookie down, you better go clean up your room, right? This is what he's saying. It's, even though it's without words, it is clear so that all can understand it. And this is true, and it's all well and good, but how does what we see in nature make wisdom delicious to us? How does it make it sweet? Because, yeah, there's, 
some things it tells us about God, right? It tells us that God exists, that he created things, and maybe we, were, uh, we are the creation in, and so we're accountable to him. But you know, there's a lot about God creation doesn't tell us, isn't there? There's a lot about God we don't know. It doesn't really tell us his true nature, for example. So you just look at nature, you're just as likely to think God is cruel and mean as he is loving and kind and generous. You know, the sun at times is beautiful, right? You see a nice, beautiful sunset and the clouds, and it's so gorgeous. But at times, y'all, isn't the sun hot and oppressive and beats down on you? We're in Texas in the summer. We've experienced this. Or even to the extreme, you go to a desert where the sun's heat is so oppressive, life cannot even exist there. Or you go to the beach, and the beach is so calm and tranquil and peaceful, and you may think, oh, this is God, God is peace, and then a hurricane comes, and it's angry and destructive. So which one is it? What, what is God like? What's his true nature? How does he feel about us? What does he think about us? Nature doesn't quite tell us that, and it's compounded by the fact, y'all, this is what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 is all about how nature works, and the revelation of nature, how it plays a part in our understanding of God. And here's what it says. We take the parts of wisdom that nature tells us, and we twist them, and we lie to ourselves about them, and we misuse it. And so really, this is the message of Romans 1, is that nature, y'all, is enough to condemn us, but not enough to save us. Because it tells us enough to know, okay, there's a God out there, there's a creation out there, there's an order out there that I'm supposed to follow, but it doesn't tell us enough to know, okay, but what is this God really like, and and how do I follow it? And how can I be saved from it? So that doesn't sound very delicious. A wisdom that's enough to condemn me, but not enough to save me? So we need more. And the psalmist knows we need more, and so he keeps going. And he goes into talking about the wisdom of Scripture, the words of God, the revealed words of God. He uses five labels for God's word. His laws, his statutes, his precepts, his commands, and his ordinances. And these are all, these are not different things. Understand these are all kind of synonyms that give a different point of view or a different aspect of God's law. They're speaking specifically of his laws, his directives, and his ordinances. So in our world, in our culture, in our legal system, think about it as a combination of the laws that are on the law books. You know, you can't speed. Can't steal, laws on the law books, mixed with uh, the decisions a judge may put forth. So the judge decides something that may not be exactly written law, but once he decides it, it becomes law. Or if we lived in a kingdom, it would be the declarations of a king. And so this is what's in view here, and this is the part of God's words that he calls delicious. And this is interesting. You know, there's some of God's words that maybe we do excite us, and we do think are delicious. Like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Sounds wonderful. Do not covet. That's, usually that's the part of God's word that we have like an allergy to, right? All the thou shalt nots. Don't do this. Do this. And yet that's what's in view. And that's the part, the least appealing part to us, is the part the psalmist is calling delicious, like honey from the honeycomb. He goes on to talk about the, the nature of the law. He says it's this. It's amazing. He, 
He used a lot of adjectives. He calls it perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. He's saying this is nothing but there's nothing better. It's amazing. Verse 8, he says, the precepts are right. All of his precepts are right. That word right, it's a word for like a straight edge. Or a, you can think of like a plumb line or a measuring tape. It's a standard, an objective standard by which everything else is measured. So you draw a line. How do you know the line is straight? Well, you compare it to the straight edge. That's your standard. That's how you know. You compare that to this. That's how you know if it's straight or not. So let me ask you this. You're, you're building a house. You want your builder to use a measuring tape or a plumb line or a T-square. Or do you want them to just kind of eyeball it? You want them to just kind of say, hey, that looks straight to me, straight enough, and so I'll just go with that. Of course you want them to use a straight edge. You're, and so your delight may not be, and when you show up at the construction site and you see him using the measuring tape, you know, like, this is the most amazing thing ever. Your delight comes when you have a house that is well built and stands, right? It's the same way with our lives, y'all. If you've ever lived for any period of time without any standard in your life, you know it's not fun. You know it is not fun when there's nothing firm, no standard to rest your life on. Nothing to tell you what's straight and what's crooked. You're always, the way the Bible describes it is, you're always tossed around with the wind. Every new idea that comes along, every new book Oprah recommends, oh, let me go read this, and, and this will make me happy, and this will be the secret. And you just jump from one thing to another. Maybe this will make me happy. No, that didn't. maybe this will make me happy. No, that didn't quite do it. Maybe this will make me happy now. No, that didn't quite do it. So you're always searching, always changing. Y'all, a life without a standard is chaos. The same way a house built without a standard would be chaos. And so the delight comes from having that objective standard in God's law. So now you know it's straight. Now you know it's crooked. Now you can build a life. He goes on to say, verse 9, his rules are true and righteous altogether. That word altogether means all of them, every single one of them. Not just the ones we like, not just the ones that make sense to us, every single one. He bats a thousand when it comes to his rules being true and righteous. So we don't get to pick and choose based on what makes sense to us or makes sense to our culture or what seems good and what seems kind of mean. We're going to buy God's law. We got we to gotta buy into the fact that every single one of them is true and righteous. But that's, a, that's an interesting claim, too, that his, his commandments and his rules are true. So if I tell one of my kids, go to your room, is that true or false? Well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Maybe they need to do it. Maybe they need to obey it. Maybe I'm justified in asking them to do that. But it doesn't really feel like a true false thing. So what, What's he saying here? This is what uh, C.S. Lewis brings up in his books as well. And he asks a question, okay, in what sense can a law and a commandment be true? He says it's this. They're, they are true because they're trustworthy in the sense that they are based on his nature. They're not arbitrary. So it's not like God woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to make lying a sin. I think I'm going to make love good. No, that's not what he did. Love is good because God is love. And so that command to love emanates from his nature. It cannot be any other way. Lying is wrong because God is not a liar. He is truthful, right? 
And so the law could never be any other way. And into that sense, it is true because it is a reflection of the truth, his nature. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said, how he puts it. The delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness. And listen to this word picture. Like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. So imagine yourself, you go out for a walk and you get lost and you get stuck in this swamp, in this bog, and you're just trudging through. It's the kind where every step you take, you go knee deep in mud. And so you got to pull your leg out and you lose your boot in there. And you struggle through that for a few hours and all of a sudden you take a step and the ground is firm. True. That's That's the sense in which all of his rules, all together, all of them are true and righteous. They are absolutely firm. And the psalmist goes on to tell us this law, these rules have amazing effects. He lists them. He says it revives us, it makes us wise, it enlightens us, and it rejoices our hearts. Verse 7 where he says it revives the soul, that, that seems to imply that our souls are experiencing some sort of death, right? That we need new life, that we need reviving, that somehow our souls are dead on the ground and need CPR. And in that sense, if it's really God's law that does that, the law is not something to be dreaded. It is something we crave. It is something we desire. So if you've ever stayed underwater too long and you pop back up and you get that first breath and it revives you, that's what he's saying God's law does. Because it makes wise the simple. All of us, even the most simple among us, can become wise with God's law. And this is a big way I think you know, we misunderstand God's law a lot of times. A lot of times we think God's law is just about reward and punishment. And so it's like a test God came up with. Okay, and if you can follow the rules, I'll reward you. But let's see, let's see, let's see if they can go through life uh, without envying. I'll, I'll make that a rule. And so maybe we envy, we break the rules, and then we're worried, okay, is God going to smite us? Is he going to punish us? Well, y'all, a lot of times he doesn't have to. Because his laws, his rules are all about if we live according to them, we are living a wise life. We are living according to how he created the world to work and, how, and from his very nature. Let me ask it like this. You go on a trip. You're flying in an airplane. You're a few thousand feet above ground. At that moment, why don't you get out of your seat, run to the door, open the door, and jump out? Is it because that's against the law? Is it because, man, then I'll go to jail, I'll have to pay a fine, you know, they probably won't let me reboard the plane, I just don't want to go through that hassle. No, y'all, we do not need a law against jumping out of the airplane without a parachute, right? Yeah, we got a law, it's called gravity. And if you structure your life according to the law of gravity, it will go well for you. If you structure your life in a way that ignores the law of gravity, it will not go well for you. You see, oftentimes, the reward or the punishment is built in. God's not up there having to smite us or wanting to smite us or just coming up with an arbitrary set of rules to see if we can keep or not. He says, this is who I am, and this is how I've created the world, and he wants us to become wise and structure our life according to it. So he gives us the law, and it says, with the law, this is great news for me even the most simple among us, can become wise. 
We can structure our life according to his nature. He goes on to say, it rejoices our hearts. It rejoices the heart. All God's rules and laws and commandments rejoices our hearts. One of the most famous lines in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. To know God and enjoy him forever. And here's the thing, those two are connected. If you want to enjoy God, you have to know him. If you want your heart to rejoice out of the joy of knowing your creator, you have to know him. The way you know him is through his law, is what the psalmist is saying. And so in that sense, the law is not a burden. It's not something to be avoided. It's a blessing. It's a revelation. It's a path towards him, towards him in living as his people. It's a re- revelation of his nature, as we've already said. So if you want to enjoy him, you get to know his words. And his words are delicious to you because they are allowing you to know your creator. They are allowing you to know him and enjoy him forever. Wait a minute here. That's all well and good. It's all well and good that God's commands are true and sure and right and perfect and good. But that doesn't necessarily make them delicious to us, does it? That could just easily make them a burden. It could just as easily make them something that I can't live up to. It could just as easily make them an unrealistic standard. It can make them, like C.S. Lewis put it, like the dentist's forceps. Something I know is good for me, but it's painful. Make them like medicine, cauliflower, more than honey, and rule book. Because here's the deal, y'all. God's law may be perfect, but I am not. And so in what sense are these laws delicious to me if I cannot keep them despite my best efforts? How can this be true, what the psalmist is claiming? Well, we need more, and the psalmist knows it. So verse 12 through 14, he goes through this. It's a prayer for forgiveness and acceptance. It's almost as if, you know, the psalmist, he's, he's gawking, and he's being amazed over God's works and his law and how amazing it is, and then he turns the camera on himself. And by comparison, it's not a good look, Right? talks about his hidden sins. You know, these could be sins that we hide from other people, certainly. The dark corners of our hearts that we make sure no one sees, no one knows about. Make sure they don't leak out in our daily life. You know, what's also in view here is the sin that's even hidden from ourselves. Isn't it true, y'all, that sin is so ingrained in us that we can be baffled by our own sin? You experience that? I do. You know, we'll do something in the moment we, we feel completely right, feel completely justified. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I need to do. And then in, after some time goes by, in retrospect, we, we're like, what an idiot. How did I ever think that was right? And yet we were fully convinced in our minds at the time. You ever been there? Man, I have. Similarly, all of us have blind spots, right? Man, we have sin in our life that is absolutely clear to everyone else except us. That's why God gave us siblings and mother-in-laws, right? Hey, listen, you ever think you got it figured out, you're a pretty good guy, you've dealt with all your sin, just go ask your sibling. They'll be happy to inform you. This is what the psalmist says. That first question, who can discern his errors, is like he's saying, he's realizing his sin is so deep and contrary to God. He's like, I don't even know where to start. Who can even comprehend the, the depth of the problem we have here? 
So what does he do? He prays for pardon. He says, declare me innocent. Or don't, don't impute the penalty of my own sin on me. Don't count it against me. Clear my name. And then in verse 13, he, he prays about his presumptuous sin. This is rebellion, high-handed sin. I know better, but I do it anyway. Sometimes this is, this is defiance. I know, but I don't care. I know I shouldn't take the cookie. I'm going to take the cookie. Y'all, sometimes this is not defiance. Sometimes it's doubt. I know what God says, but I don't really believe that's the best thing. I know God says, tells me not to steal that bread, but I'm starving, and, and it feels like that is the way toward a terrible, miserable life, and it feels like this is a way to make me happy, to make my life work better. This makes, makes way more sense. And so I know God says different, but that seems crazy, and so I'm going to go do this because I doubt God's word. I doubt his goodness. I know better. And for this, he prays for protection. It's like he acknowledges the dominion sin can have in our life, where it's not just a matter of knowledge. He says there's times I know the law, but I act contrary to it, and this sin has dominion. It has its power over me, and Lord, protect me from its power. Don't let it rule my life. Again, I have to stop and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. This doesn't sound like the prayer of someone who thinks God's law is delicious, right? Would you want to pray this prayer? God, expose all of my hidden sins. I'd be willing to guess. Let's say I found, uh, came up with a contraption. Put it right, right as you walk through that door. Every Sunday you walk through that door, and it reveals all your hidden sins and just puts them up on the screen right here, right as you walk through. None of you would say, man, this church is just sweeter than honey in my life. Right? He sounds desperate. He sounds dejected. He sounds burdened. This prayer is a cry for help from someone who knows they should be blameless but isn't. Until you get to verse 14. The last verse. Now it becomes really delicious. Here I think we find a couple applications for our life. The first one is this. For wisdom to be delicious, you must know the Lord. For wisdom to be delicious, you must know the Lord. And there's no way around it. Verse 14, he talks about all the words of my mouth, all the meditations of my heart, everything I think, all of my actions, my outward actions, and my, my inward thoughts and desires. I want it to all be pleasing to you. That word pleasing is from the sacrificial system. And the picture was, you bring God a sacrifice, they put it on the altar, and these fumes come up. This aroma comes up. And it goes up to God, and God smells it, and it is pleasing to Him. He smells it. Oh, that's delicious. That smells so sweet. That's the picture. That's the desire of the psalmist. Now, who's ever lived up to this standard? Have you? Certainly not me, where all of our thoughts, all of our actions, man, they go up to God and are absolutely pleasing to Him. And that's why, that's why, y'all, as soon as He says this, He switches. He switches from talking about the law to talking about relationship. He immediately appeals not to His relationship to the law, but with His relationship to God. Because here's the deal the law just like the sun, just like nature, is meant not to be uh, the end in and of itself, but is meant to point us to its author 
infinite creator. And so he cries out to God and calls him his rock and his redeemer. And these are words that describe his relationship to God, who God is to him. The word rock, it's, it's a word for a fortress. It's protection. It's a place that you flee to when your enemies are stronger than you and pursuing you, and you need a safe place. That's your rock. That's your protection. It's your fortress. It's your safe place. Tells God his redeemer. This is a legal image. It's the person who speaks up for you when you can't defend yourself. So in the slave trade, the redeemer would be the one who when you had sold yourself into slavery and couldn't pay the fee to buy yourself back, he's the one who would step in and pay that for you and set you free. But also it's someone who would be an advocate for you if you found yourself uh, in prison or in the courts and you could not defend yourself or you could not pay your fine. He was your advocate. So he says, who is going to pardon me from this endless list of my hidden sins? Who is going to make sure that the penalty is not put upon me? God, my Redeemer. Who is going to free me from the power of sin in my life? God, my rock. He's going to be my protection. But how? How does this work? Just about saying about the law, oh, never mind, never mind about that law. I know I said all those things, but we'll just, we'll just scoot that under the rug real quick. No! The psalmist has already said all of his rules, all of his laws are true and righteous, all together, every single one of them. You can't just dismiss it. Perhaps it's by God just flippantly excusing his sins. This isn't possible. The psalmist would have known Due to the Old Testament sacrificial system, he would have known that each and every one of his sins had to be paid for by blood, and he would have known it should have been his blood. He knew that though the psalm promises great reward to those who keep the law, he knew he had not kept it, and he knew punishment was due. Here's the deal, y'all. Of all of us, In this room, all the people outside of this room, all the people in the world, all the people in history, only one person has lived up to this standard where every word of his mouth, every meditation of his heart was delicious to God, was pleasing to God, and that was Jesus Christ. You may remember the story when he was just a little boy, his parents couldn't find him. Why? Because he loved God's law so much, he was in the temple talking and debating and reading and studying every word that God had written he loved it so much. He delighted in it so much. It was so delicious to him. There was this one time in John chapter 4, they'd been walking a long time and ministering a lot, and his disciples asked him why after such a long day he wasn't hungry. And Jesus responded by saying, my food is to do my Father's will. He delighted to do God's will. He delighted in it so much, so much that the most painful experience of his life Dying on the cross, Hebrews 12, 2 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, the joy of doing his Father's will. So only one person has kept the law with all his words and all his thoughts. And this psalm says, reward was due him, but that's not what happened. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, and this is amazing, amazing truth. Verse says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we may receive adoptions as sons. It's born under law. This means, y'all, that Jesus was born under all the same expectations of obedience to the law as we were. You know what? The Bible says he completely fulfilled the law with every word of his mouth and every meditation 
with his heart. He loves God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. Everything he did was pleasing to God. I would put it this way. Everything you do wrong, he did right. Everything you do wrong, he did right. And because of this, because of his righteousness, Galatians says we are redeemed to get to become sons. You and I, we get to put on him. The the picture the Bible gives us is we become clothed in Christ. We put on all of his righteousness. And this is how Jesus becomes our rock and our redeemer. He's our fortress. He's our safe place. So when sin and temptation assault us, we have a new power of protection from the dominion of sin in our lives. We have his life in us. We have his righteousness in us. The law is not set aside, nor is our sin just casually set aside. He's our redeemer. He is our active advocate against Satan's accusations. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about what you will do when this world is over and you face judgment? What will you say? What will you say when your accuser gets up there with all the list of hidden sins and they're hidden no more, with all the rebellion? It says, this is what this guy did. How will you respond? What defense can you possibly give? And in just the right moment, in just that moment, Christ our Redeemer, our advocate, steps in and says, objection! We got to strike all this evidence! See, I was pierced for those iniquities. I was crushed for each and every one of those transgressions, and the wrath of God has been fully satisfied. In fact, in fact, Your Honor, I think if you'll take a second look at the record, you will find all the words of his mouth, all the meditations of your heart were actually absolutely pleasing to God. And men and women, that objection can only be sustained because of what Jesus has done, our rock and our redeemer. So if wisdom will ever be delicious to you, you got to know the Lord. He has to be the rock and the redeemer to you. Finally, for wisdom to be delicious, in light of what Jesus has done, I would say, for wisdom to be delicious, we must reimagine God's law. we got to rethink how we often think about God's law, don't we? I'll put most of us in two camps. Some of us, usually in our usual view and the way we see God's law, I would call us oppressed lawbreakers. So we see the law as kind of this oppressor who's impossible to please, like this mean, strict teacher who only holds the highest standard. And every time we go into the class, every time we turn into paper, it gets sent back to us filled with red ink. So we grow to despise the law. The law seems to just be there to point out all of our imperfections, to make us feel guilty all the time. The law feels crushing to our soul. I'm reminded of a joke by Brian Regan. He told the story of going to his doctor one time. And he, you know, had some health issues, maybe not as young as he used to be. And so the doctor said, hey, listen, I don't want you to eat or drink dairy anymore. And Brian Regan said, all I heard the doctor was say was, and now no more happiness. It's what the law is to us sometimes. God's saying, no more happiness. And when we live like this, when we live as oppressed lawbreakers, it leads to us loving and excusing our sin because we become convinced that our lives will be less fun, less fulfilling without our sin. 
and with the law. And so we, we justify and we say, this is acceptable, this is okay, this isn't hurting anyone, and we believe the law that our lives are actually sweeter and better with that sin instead of with God's law. Others of us don't misuse the law by setting it aside, by being a be, being oppressed lawbreaker. Some of us misuse the law and misunderstand the law by trying to keep it. We are joyless legalists. We actually believe that we can take a running shot at keeping this law and at pleasing God ourselves. The problem is, that's a fiction. In order to maintain that fiction, we have to do some substitutions. So instead of the real, true righteousness God demands, we substitute mere external actions, right? So instead of true inner purity, we say, you know what, I'll just dress appropriately, I'll hang out with respectable people, and we'll call that purity. Instead of true inward humility, we just kind of practice this false modesty. We think, hey, as long as I keep my high opinion of myself to myself, I can call that humility. Instead of true sacrificial love, we give dutiful service while keeping my internal bitterness at people's demands to myself, keeping my judgments of other people to myself. And this this kind of joyless legalism, it, it shows itself in a life of comparison, right? And so, you know, we, 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 pretty soon we come to understand, I, hey, I can't use the law to really please God, but maybe I can use the law to just be better than other people. And so if I can come to church, right, and as long as I generally feel like I'm doing a better job than most other people, maybe with like five or six exceptions, okay. So now I can use the law, maybe not to make myself righteous before God, but at least I can use the law to make myself feel better and compared to other people, right? It comes with the dark side, though. So while the law may make us feel superior to others for a moment, we are also always afraid of the law, right? Because we know, we know, we are only one step away. At any second, we could fail. We are constantly only one failure away from this house of cards we've built crumbling. But you know what? There's a third option. There's a third option of how we see the law in our lives. It's the sun. Be like the sun. Not S, maybe S-O-N, but in the psalm, S-U-N. You remember verse 5? You remember how he described the sun when it comes out in the morning and goes down at night? He compared it to a bridegroom or to an athlete on game day, running out of the tunnel, ready to play the game. A bridegroom coming to see his bride, eager for the wedding where he will get his bride. Y'all remember, right, the years right after college, you know, that's when a lot of weddings are, and a lot of my friends got married. I went to a lot of weddings, and I saw all these guys who I had known for four years before in college, and I had never seen them awake before the hour p.m., okay? But what happens when wedding day comes? Y'all, we don't have to set an alarm. I don't have to go shake them and wake them up. Man, they're up because they're excited. They're filled with joy. They're eager to do uh, and live the path God has set before them. And so this is the picture. This is the picture of the sun. So to the sun, y'all, the law of God is not oppressive. It's not to be feared. It is a source of joy. It's not rules. It's not a test. It's the expression of God's character in its life. It's going forth in the path that God has set before it. And the law enables it to do that. 
here's what I want you to know this morning. As long as you think the law is the way you'll be made right with God, as long as the function the law serves in your life, a way for you to be made right with God, you will either be an oppressed lawbreaker or a joyless legalist. But when you see that Jesus' perfect obedience and death on the cross have fulfilled all the law's demands, all together, each and every one of them has been fulfilled, then, and only then, you can begin to love the law. You can change your relationship with the law. Because this, you'll understand, you understand that God is not so much interested in your perfect obedience as much as he is interested in Jesus' perfect obedience lived out in you. And so now our hearts are acceptable. Now he can delight in us. Now we can praise the psalmist does, not no longer distant from God or in fear of God or in fear of judgment. The law, men and women, is no longer a threat to you. It can no longer condemn you. That's why the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just like we sang this morning, we no longer have to live in fear. Instead, we can live according to who we were meant to be. So just as the sun follows its appointed path in the sky, the law is how we live as the sons and daughters of God. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to get you, get you a honey bear, you know, go to Andy's, bake a cake, bake some cookies, whatever is sweet and delicious to you. I want you to get some this week. I want you to take a bite. Mm. That's what God's law is like. Then I want you to take a second bite. Say, you know what? That can be true because that's what all the thoughts of Jesus' mind and everything in Jesus' heart tasted like to God. Completely pleasing, completely acceptable. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.